passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I hope you had a good 4th of July and you had a chance to get together and be with some family and enjoy some fireworks. But um, just so you know, the 4th of July is more than just a a day off from work. It's more than just a a holiday. The 4th of July is actually a day we commemorate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Many people have forgotten about that. That was July 4th, 1776. And the, the 13 colonies could declare themselves a united and free nation called the United States of America. And truly, that was a seismic shift in world history at that moment. And it's something that we really don't want to forget about, which is why we celebrate July 4th. But there are other seismic shifts that took place in world history, shifts that we don't want to forget about. One of those is the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. You may not realize this, but the Protestant Reformation completely changed the way that we live, and it completely changed the way we view life. For Christians, one of the ways it changed our life is the way that we view sex. It's honest truth. Prior to the Reformation the general Christian view of human sexuality is that it was some kind of sort of necessary evil for procreation. I'll give you an example of what some of the early church fathers said about marital sexuality. Tertullian, he said this, he says, I prefer the extinction of the human race to married couples enjoying sexual intimacy. That's not pretty good, not at all. Ambrose Early church fathers said Mary's couples should be ashamed of their sexuality. Augustine, he was a little bit better. He said that uh, sexual expression between married couples is appropriate as long as they don't enjoy it. Not doing too well there. Catholic priests, by the way, it was common for them to teach that married couples should try to abstain from sexual intimacy. In fact, the Catholic Church, prior to the Reformation, began creating what you and I would call blackout days. They were called holy days where married couples should not engage in sexual intimacy because it was their way of being holy to the Lord. And they had just a few during the calendar year. Like 183 a year where couples were not allowed to be together. Like I said... Thank goodness for the Reformation, a time when people actually got their Bibles out and they actually put their finger in the biblical text and they learned that they were way off when it came to what God said about sexuality and what they taught about sexuality. They put their finger in the text. They learned that it was God who created us, man and woman. It was God who created the institution of marriage and marriage is a good thing. And it was God who created sexual intimacy, and God is pleased with sexual intimacy between a married couple. And that sexual intimacy is there for friendship, it's there for children, and it's there for joy and pleasure. And in essence, that married sexuality is one of the best 
blessings and gifts God has given. But also, sexuality, when it's taken outside of marriage, can become one of life's greatest pains. This morning, we're going to be looking at sexuality. As a church, we have been studying our way through the Ten Commandments. And today we are on the seventh commandment, which has to do with committing adultery. So I'd like for everyone to take out their, <coughs> excuse me, their outlines. Go ahead and take them out. The commandment's right on the top. We're going to read the commandment, and then we're going to start to study this commandment about sexuality. So here you go. It's real short, real simple. You shall not commit adultery. That ends the reading of God's word. Now, here's how we're going to study it. What does this commandment mean? Then we'll look at why did God give it? Then we'll look at the danger of violating it. And then I'm going to spend a lot of time giving you real practical instructions on how to avoid sinning in this area. Because that's really where it all comes home. So let's begin. What does this command mean? Well, obviously, adultery is pretty straightforward. Adultery means uh, marital or sexual unfaithfulness to the covenant you have made to your spouse before God. A promise of sexual exclusivity between a husband and wife. And the primary purpose of this commandment is the protection of the family. By the way, there are other passages in the Old Testament where God spells out the penalty for breaking this commandment. Just so you know, the penalty for breaking this commandment is the exact same penalty as committing murder, which sort of gives you an idea uh, how much sanctity God holds in marriage, right? And you mar kill somebody, you kill. You commit adultery, guess what happens? Let's go ahead and read it. If a man commits adultery with his wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So God has a pretty high view of sexual fidelity. Notice here, by the way, there is no extenuating circumstances given in this command. It doesn't say, well, by the way, it's okay if you fall out of love. It doesn't say, oh, it was okay. We were on a business trip and we were lonely. We couldn't help ourselves. It's just like, okay, you commit adultery, you die. That's where it goes. By the way, this really cuts down on repeat offenders, doesn't it? Now, today, we live in a very different culture. We live in a culture where, where adultery is commonplace, where adultery is actually celebrated. In my research this week, I discovered that uh, there was a survey done of relationships between men and women that are portrayed on television and in movies, and the result is that nine out of ten uh, relationships that we see portrayed in the media is adulterous or some kind of sexually inappropriate relationship. Nine out of ten. We have websites dedicated to adultery. You guys ever heard of Ashley Madison? Like how many people have been signed up on that? And when there are lists about who signed up for that made public, about how many people uh, were exposed as looking for, an adult, looking for an adulterous affair? Another statistic I ran across just really shocked me. 
41% of people who are married admitted to, to being involved in either a physical or emotional um, extramarital affair sometime during their marriage. Now, that's not all a physical affair, but that could also include an emotional affair. And that's a lot of people who are involved in that. Now, um, thankfully, most of us are going to sit here this morning and go, Phew, I'm good. I have not committed adultery. I can take a pass on this one. And before you get too smug and you start to look down on other people who have been sexually unfaithful to their spouses, you need to look at the fact that Jesus sort of talks about this command. And Jesus says that this command is not just about the physical act of adultery. This command actually pertains to everything else leading up to adultery. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, most relationships, extramarital relationships that is, do not begin with sex. They begin with inappropriate intimacy in the thought life. And Jesus says this command forbids a man or a woman from thinking about someone of the opposite sex in an inappropriate way. So married men, this means it's completely wrong for you to flirt with some of the married ladies at work. You can't sit there and say, well, I haven't committed adultery. Yeah, but in your heart, you are cultivating those things that lead to adultery. And married men, you can't turn around and say to the single ladies at work, well, she's not, at least she's not married, so I can flirt with her. No, you're still cultivating things that could lead to adultery. And ladies, this forbids you from seeking and looking for emotional support from men that are not your husbands. You know how sometimes ladies will do this. They'll look for emotional support from a man at work. No. This is the things that would be leading to adultery. Or a woman would look for emotional support from a man she's met on the internet. If the man is not your husband, then Jesus says, this command forbids you from doing that. Now, as you go from Jesus and you start to look at Paul, Paul talks about how we should conduct ourselves sexually. And Paul really sort of zooms in here uh, on single people. Not exclusively single people, but usually single people and how they conduct themselves sexually with people of the opposite sex and what's right and what's wrong. I'm going to just go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20, verse 21. It says this, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Now, what I want to clue you in on is I underlined three of those words. We may not realize, but all three of those words are sexually orientated in nature. And Paul is talking about the Corinthians that have not repented of their sexual sin. So let's go ahead and look at what these words mean. 
the first word here is translated as impurity. It means lewd or sexually loose. The idea is that when you are around somebody and you're not married to them, even if you are dating them, you should not conduct yourself in a sexually loose way. Now you say, what does that mean? Let me explain it to you this way. Guys, I want to talk to you. Say there's another guy out there, and he is dating the woman who will someday be your wife. You don't know that yet, but he's dating her now. What do you think it's appropriate for him to do with that woman who will be your future wife? How would you like him to treat her? Should he make out with her? Should he grope her? No, no, I want to keep her pure for my wedding day. You just caught it. Guys, the girl that you are dating, you treat her with absolute purity because until she is your wife, she's considered somebody else's wife and you treat her with absolute purity until she's married. Do you understand how this is going? This is when he says of the impurity you've conducted yourself with, this sexually looseness you've conducted yourself with. Now, the next word, or little words here, is sexual immorality. This is the Greek word pornea, from where we get our English word pornography. It's actually a junk drawer term used to refer to any sexual expression outside of marriage. It covers pornography, it covers sexting, it covers 900 numbers, it covers inappropriate Snapchatting. God says this is something of which you need to repent if you are involved in it. Any kind of sexual expression outside of marriage. The first word had to do with treating someone of the opposite sex with absolute purity. The second word had any sexual expression outside of marriage. The third word is sensuality. Now we're going to talk about the ladies here. This literally means lacking in modesty or lacking in re sexual restraint. Now, ladies, you know how this works. You can dress to entice, right? Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? Everyone else calls it fashion. God calls it sin. That's literally what it is. It's dressing in a sensual way. Ladies, you know the difference between dressing nicely and looking nicely or dressing in a way that everybody looks at you as a sexual object and can't help but think of you in a sexual way. If that is the way you dress... God says, repent, because other people should look at you as a person, not a sexual object. In fact, it's interesting, Paul goes and he gets to the pastoral letters, and he has a great summary that I've used in the past to describe what should be the kind of relationship between a man and a woman until they're married. And essentially, he says this, you treat someone of the opposite sex like they're a family member. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. 
younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with all purity. The way I've summarized it is this. If you wouldn't do it with your sister, you don't do it with your girlfriend. Treat her as a sister. If you wouldn't do it with your boyfriend or you wouldn't do it with your brother, then don't do it with your boyfriend. So the summary of how this goes as you look across the Bible is the Ten Commandments very clearly forbid physical adultery. But Jesus says, you know, it's not just the act of physical adultery that this is talking about. This is not talking just about hand adultery. This is talking about heart adultery. And then Paul, he continues to tease that out. And he says, you shouldn't conduct yourself in any kind of way that would encourage someone's impurity, any kind of sexual immorality. You shouldn't conduct yourself in a way that has people look at you sensually. You should only treat someone of the opposite sex like they're a member of your family and do nothing with them that you wouldn't normally do with your own brothers and sisters until you're married. And when you're married, guess what? Everything changes. Now, we've talked about what this commandment means. Now let's look at why. Why is adultery forbidden? Because I know what a number of you are thinking this morning. You're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe God is such a sexual prude. (laughs) No, he's not. Here's the point. The reason adultery or any kind of sexuality outside of marriage is forbidden is because sex is relational superglue. When God says this for absolute purity, it's not because sex is so bad. He says this because sex is so good. Sex is extremely, extremely powerful. It's relational superglue. It creates a permanent and a powerful bond between people. And used properly, sexuality is one of the things that keeps a couple together when their relationship is hard. It's one of the things that keeps a couple together when life gets difficult. In fact, this is why the Bible says that when two people are intimate in marriage, they literally are considered and become one flesh. But when sex is used improperly and it's used outside of marriage, it's still relational superglue. It's just all of a sudden you find yourself sticking to things you didn't want to stick to, things you didn't plan to stick to, and all of a sudden it's like you have glue in your fingers and everything's stuck to you, and it's a real, it's a real mess. Now, I want to just prove this to you, because some of you may not agree with me that sex is relational supergroup. Ladies, you ever been in a relationship with a guy and you have a breakup? Is that painful? Is it hard? And when you are around that person, years later, is there still an emotional turmoil that is in your heart over that? Well, yeah, because sex is relational superglow. Men, you ever start looking at something on the internet that's inappropriate? Pictures of women that you shouldn't see? Oh, you can walk away from that real easy, right? Absolutely not, because what's happening? Sex is bonding you to it, and you're finding yourself stuck to it. 
All of a sudden, you're finding yourself that sexuality is sticking you to things you didn't want to stick to. You see how this works? Another reason why God says that we should avoid any kind of sexual immorality and adultery is that sex also has spiritual impact. The Bible says that when we're involved with someone sexually, it literally bonds us to them. And it happens on a spiritual level, not just an emotional level. You see, the Scripture tells us that our relationship with God is like marriage. In fact, in the Old Testament, it talks about that multiple times. You go to Ephesians chapter 5, and all of a sudden it says our relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, is one like marriage, and that we're supposed to be one, we're one flesh, sort of, with Christ. But when we start to express our sexuality outside of marriage, we start bonding with people, not just physically, but we bond spiritually, and we're even bringing that inappropriate person, so to speak, into our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me read this to you. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That's that bond between us and God. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, oops, hold on. As it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And I say this just to point out that sexual immorality does not just have a physical impact upon you. It has a spiritual impact upon you. Engaging in sexual immorality will hinder your relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot be involved in sexual immorality and not have spiritual ramifications and spiritual implications. It's just impossible. The next thing to mention is this. One of the reasons that God insists on absolute purity before marriage is because sex has a powerful personal impact. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, when you choose to be involved in sexual immorality and get involved sexually with either that's virtually on the internet or that's personally in a relationship with someone who is not your spouse, it will change you. It'll change your character. It'll change your values. It'll change your thinking. You'll be just ridden with guilt, ridden with shame. You may actually find yourself contracting an STD. It's going to change you physically. You may find yourself contracting AIDS. And even if you avoid those um, physical ramifications of extramarital sexuality, here's one thing that you can never avoid. It's called the memories. You guys know what I'm talking about? For the rest of your life, the memories of that inappropriate sexuality will pop into your mind at the absolute worst time. And you have to constantly battle those away. 
Now, we've talked about uh, the ramifications of physical infidelity, but I want to just sort of segue a little bit here. I want to talk about the ramifications of what I call virtual infidelity, because that is something that is rampant in our culture today through cell phones and through the internet. Many people tend to give themselves sort of a pass on virtual infidelity because they say, you know, it's just in my thought life. It didn't actually take place. It's not really nearly as bad. It's only my imagination. (laughs) It's much worse than you realize. Now, I want to take for a few minutes, and at this point, I want to really focus on men. Ladies, this still applies to you, but in a different way. But the reason I want to focus on men in particular is because men are very visual, right? And the internet is filled with all kinds of visualing, enticing things for men. And there are huge ramifications for this that most of you do not realize. Just so you know, the extent of this problem, I did some research and discovered that right now, 30% of the traffic that is on the internet is pornographic in nature. There is more pornographic data traveling on the internet today than the combined outputs of Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter put together. And that uh, pornography on the internet is a highly highly addictive thing. See, traditional pornography that was based on like a paper or or a magazine thing, somebody looked at it, they consumed it, and then it was done. Sort of like gum where the flavor has been chewed out of it. You had to wait for another month for like the next issue. So there was a way to sort of like have a break in there. The internet is not that way. There are always new pictures, new issues that are there that are only one more click away and it never, never stops. And those people who look at this say this is like the ultimate worst case scenario for a highly addictive response cycle. So men can become completely addicted very quickly. Now, let me just talk about manhood for a moment. Many men find themselves involved in looking at things on the internet because they say, you know, because I do this because I'm so masculine. You know, because I have so much testosterone. My urges are just too strong. I'm just a a, a guy and I'm always thinking that way. And I want to tell you guys, if that's you, and you think you're just so much of a man and that's why you're so into that stuff, the exact opposite is what is true. Let me explain this to you. In the Latin, there's a word called seduco. It means to lead astray. It is the root word from where we get our word seduction. Seduction means to lead astray. A man who won't allow himself to stop pornography is allowing himself to be seduced by a woman That is literally, seduced means to be led astray from his home, led astray from his family. Now, the qualities of true manliness are this. The qualities of a true man is he knows how to lead himself and to lead others. The qualities of a true man is he knows how to restrain himself and control himself. 
But if you think about it for a moment, a man who is constantly looking at all kinds of sexually inappropriate things on the internet is exactly in the opposite situation. Instead of leading himself, he is being seduced. He was allowing a virtual woman to lead him and lead him astray. Instead of experiencing or expressing self-control and restraint, he's expressing absolutely no self-discipline and no self-restraint. John Milton, who's a Puritan, said about this, said this term about men who refuse to restrain themselves for their lusts. He says, all they are doing is displaying their effeminate slackness. Oh, I like that. That's a good cut down. <laughs> you think you're such a man? You're an effeminate slackness is what you are. You see, when you refuse to turn away from the seductive woman, from the seductive images, you're not displaying any leadership of yourself or displaying any leadership of others. You're displaying no self-control or self-restraint, which is the true qualities of a man. What you've reduced yourself to as a man is an effeminate weakling who can't say no and who can't lead himself, and all he is is led away by an image of a woman from his wife and his family. You understand, see, a man, when he displays in his, his sexuality in marriage, it strengthens himself. A man, when he is uh, displaying his sexuality outside of marriage and allow himself to be, to be led away and can display no self-control and no self-restraint, he is reduced to what is known as a blubbering, effeminate fool. You're not a real man. You're anything but a man. The scriptures say these things. Look what it writes about in Proverbs, talking about the man who refused to restrain himself sexually. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you groan, when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline. You see self-control there? And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. That's the man at the end of his life who's given himself to pursuing a woman that is not his wife going out of marriage, whether it's virtually or physically. Now, because it is so important to turn away from the sin of lust, and it's so pervasive in our society, I'm going to give you nine, nine ways to beat the sin of lust. We're going to move quickly through them. Here we go. Number one, remember sexual sin only promises momentary pleasure that will morph into self Hatred. Sexual sin by nature is just a moment, a brief flash, like a firework of pleasure, and then it is completely gone, and you're completely angry at yourself. You hate yourself for being involved in it. Tell yourself when you face sexual sins that two seconds 
one second after you have been, um, committed the sexual sin, you will hate yourself for doing it. It's exactly what happens. In the Old Testament, we'll see how this works. Uh, you may remember Amnon and Tamar. Amnon uh, had a half-sister named Tamar, who was a beautiful, beautiful woman. And he found himself just consumed with lust for his half-sister. He just had to have her. And what the scriptures tell us is the lust turned into rape to express his sexual desires. How happy do you think he was after he finished that? But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than her, he violated her and he lay with her. He raped her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said, get up and go. And how about Tamar? Beautiful woman. Never ended up marrying. Completely heartbroken to the day of her death. How well did your lust turn out? It's a moment of pleasure in a lifetime of regrets. Number two, remember God promises to judge the sexually immoral. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Now, when God promises to judge adulterers and he promises is he promises to judge those who are uh, sexually immoral, which is, remember, that's the junk drawer term, which refers to everything else outside of marriage. That should make us sit up and take notice. Anybody want to be in the position where God promises to judge us for it? I don't think anybody wants to be in that position. It should put the fear of God in us. Some of you need to look at this verse and go, you know what? I just need to go home and disconnect the internet to maintain my purity. Some of you have to disconnect cable. Do whatever you have to to avoid God judging you because you constantly pursue sexual immorality. Number three, remember that God is with us even when we're alone. When you're home alone at night and you have the remote in your hand, God's watching. When you're home alone, you think nobody knows and you have the trackpad with your finger on it, God is watching and God will reward you or discipline you based upon what we do when no one is looking because he is always looking. Look what it says, Jeremiah 17.10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. He knows exactly what's going through our heads to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God will honor those who choose to honor him, especially sexually. And we saw already that God disciplines those who choose to dishonor him, and he knows. Number four, remember that pursuing our lusts always leads to perversion. When people stay in a long-term track of pursuing their lusts, soon what happens is normal heterosexual attraction and pleasure is not enough. And over time, they begin to start looking for perverted sexual 
pleasures. That's the truth. I'm going to show it to you right here in the Bible. Romans chapter 1. We'll look at verse 24, then jump to 26 and 27. Therefore, it says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is talking about heterosexual sin. It goes a little further, talking about the descent of sin. For this reason, then God gave them up eventually to dishonorable pleasures. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their, their error. Those who continue in their lusts ends up as sexual perverts. Anybody want to be a pervert? I don't think so. That's the natural descent of pursuing lusts. The whole homosexual subculture, the Bible says, is birthed out of sexual perversion in the heterosexual culture. And people going, you know what? Heterosexual perversion is not enough for me. I need something weirder and something more, and God gives them up to go in that direction. Another way to think about this to help us avoid sexual sin is remember that sexual sin sends people to hell. It does. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Those who continue to pursue sexual immorality, adultery, and homosexuality will not be part of the kingdom of God. I didn't say that. God said that. Now, you and I have all seen those homosexuals who parade around with signs that says, Jesus loves me and so should you. We've all seen uh, churches where you have, they ordain homosexuals and actually ordain homosexuals to, uh, like, to be ministers. I got to tell you, I'm just reading the text. You could be a, a pastor who's a homosexual. You're not going to be in heaven. It's just not going to be there. It's just right in the text. You cannot be born again and continue in the practice of homosexuality, continue in the practice of adultery, or continue in the practice of sexual immorality. Now, this does not mean that when someone becomes a Christian, they have instant perfection from sexual sin. What this means is there is a change in direction of sexual sin. All of a sudden, what people thought was normative and healthy and fun before becomes something they say, that is not me. No. And there is a battle that takes place. There is a war that takes place where men, they get accountability partners. Hold me accountable. Anything. I'm going to have victory over this sin. I will not enter into this sin anymore. It's who I was. It is not who I am. In this battle is evidence 
there has been a change. Number six, you're battling the sins of lust. If you're single, focus on getting married to fulfill sexual desires. When we did the uh, a series a number of years ago called uh, Solomon on Sex, we studied through the Song of Solomon. We did Q&A questions at the end. Some of you guys remember those Q&A questions. My favorite Q&A question was this, where people said, you know, why does God give young men such strong sexual desires? Answer, so you will get married. Because that's where they're supposed to go. You're supposed to get married and love your wife. You know, so what you do is you look for a good and godly woman You don't fornicate with her. You marry her. And then you love her the way that she should be loved. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 9 says this, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Here's the key part. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, some of you young ladies and young men we're definitely going to give me an amen on this. Yeah, I think it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But here's the problem. I can't find the right person to marry. So what do I do? And here's my bit of wisdom for you at this moment. If you want to find the right person to marry, focus on being the right person to marry. Singleness encourages selfishness. It does. You live for yourself. All you do is think about yourself. Here's the problem. As soon as you get married, you will quickly discover that selfishness needs to go out the window in a real hurry. Let me talk to you, men. Men, tell me if I get an amen on this one. You're married. All of a sudden, your wife is not about, your life is not about you. It's about loving your wife. It's about sacrificing for your children. It's about working late hours. It's whatever you need to do to sacrifice to take care of a family. Is that right? Amen. Amen. Selfishness doesn't work anymore. And what single young ladies are looking for is oftentimes they're looking for a man who is not selfish. A man who is willing to sacrifice for others and to serve others, and to help others. And when single young women see a man like that, trust me, they're saying, that's the kind of guy I'm looking for. And so here's what happens. Single young men, they're like, okay, hey, it's, you know, church is over with, I'm out of here, see you next week. No. You want to serve single young men? Be a greeter. Uh, help in the coffee bar. You know, nursery. Yeah, by the way, you know, if you are a single young man and you know how to change diapers, trust me, you're going to have a dozen women chasing you down because that's what they want, somebody that can actually serve and not think just about themselves. So the focus is this. You want to marry the right person? You focus on being the right kind of person, a person that's not selfish but sacrifices for others. Let's flip to the other side. Number seven. If I'm married, it's my responsibility to not sexually deprive my spouse. Hey, it's in the text. I'm just just reading the Bible. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. Only deprive one another long enough for a prayer meeting. That's not too long. 
But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If you are married, you have a responsibility to be a barrier against sexual immorality for your spouse. In other words, I'm not tempted to look elsewhere because things are so captivating at home. Years ago, when we did this topic on uh, Solomon on sex, I mentioned about the, some of the questions. The one question that I received that also shocked me was um, this one. A number of people said, what should I do if my spouse is no longer interested in sexual intimacy? Now, I was surprised to get that one. But that was a question that was submitted by more than one person. So let me give you a couple thoughts on that. Number one, bedroom problems are usually friendship problems. They are. Bedroom problems are usually friendship problems problems. There's also usually a problem with selfishness instead of tenderness. Because when you focus on tenderness and when you focus on friendship, most of the bedroom problems go away. But recognizing that, still you have this command in Scripture not to, viol- not to deprive one another. Number eight, focus on God's grace because it turns us away from sin. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And notice this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Many times when people are struggling with sexual sin, they want to get into like some kind of sexual sin recovery group and all they do is talk about sexual sin. And quite honestly, that usually makes things worse. Not better. The scriptures tell us that what trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions is falling more in love with Jesus. Jesus is the greater pleasure. If you are struggling with sexual sin, I can't say this to you enough. Get in your Bible every day. Be faithful in attendance in church. Be faithful in listening to to preachers on on the radio. Whatever you have to do to immerse yourself in God's word, and you will find that the greater joy of love for Christ will outstrip the lesser joy of sexual sin. That's what it says. Focusing on the grace of Christ is what trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Last one is this. Run from sexual sin. Three times the Bible tells us what to do when we're facing temptation. When you are facing sexual temptation, you do not negotiate with a remote in your hand. You do not negotiate with sexual sin, with a trackpad in front of you. You get up and you run. You get out of there as fast as you can. If you negotiate with sexual sin, you will lose every time. Look what the scriptures say about Joseph when he was caught by Mrs. Potiphar. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. Or 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Do whatever you have to to get out of there. Tonight in your life group, you're going to focus on a case study. Your life group worksheet questions are going to focus around David. David and 
Bathsheba, a case study of a man who gave up, who gave in to adultery. One of the things you're going to do is you're going to look at what are all the things that he did wrong that opened himself up to this. But why David did a lot of things that opened himself up to adultery, and you'll find that out when you study it in, in 2 Samuel 11 and Psalm 51. You also find that he did one thing right after he committed adultery. Not right away. But after a few years, Nathan the prophet came to him and called him to the carpet on his sin. And here's what he did. He confessed his sin. And he repented of his sin. He didn't just confess his sin to God, but he confessed his sin to those he had sinned against. And in his case, it was an entire nation. How do I know that? If he didn't confess his sin, why would it be in our Bibles? Because everyone knew about his sin. Now, this morning is, I went through this study on adultery and sexual sin. I know there are a number of us this morning who are feeling guilty. Yep, that's me. I've committed that sin. I'm trying to hide it. I hope no one knows. David did a whole bunch of things wrong, but the one thing he did right was confess and repent. You may have done a whole bunch of things wrong. Do the one thing that is right today, which is confess and repent. First, today you need to confess to God, but you also need to confess to the one you've sinned against. For you, that may be your spouse. That may be a fiance. I don't know who it is, but you need to confess to the one you've sinned against because that's the only way that healing and restoration can begin. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, tough topic today. Uh, uncomfortable to talk about it. But I just pray, Lord, that by speaking your word and speaking truth, your word will do its work in our heart. It'll cut us. It'll change us. It'll lead us to repentance in confession of sin, that we would run to the cross for the forgiveness that is offered us in Jesus. And we wouldn't just confess to you privately, but we confess publicly to any of those we've sinned against so that we may be pure, holy, and righteous before you without sin in hidden areas of our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.